0: This is Trepwire Week in Review for the week ending February 2nd, 2024. I'm Haley Keene with TREP, a data, modeling, and analytics firm for the CMBS Commercial Real Estate and CLO Markets. I'm with Lonnie Hendry, Chief Product Officer, and Stephen Bushbaum, Research Director. And today we have two very special guests, Danielle Martino Booth, CEO and Chief Strategist of Quill Intelligence and former Federal Reserve Insider, and Dan McNamara founder and chief investment officer at popo capital and mall short expert danielle dan welcome back to the podcast
1: well i'm excited to be here and it's going to be pretty easy because it's dan and danielle so this is good
0: (laughs) so this week we've called you guys here to break down what was a very busy week we knew that we were expecting the first fed meeting of 2024 and new jobs data but then we had some additional alerts in the banking sector. So today we'll use this time to explain how everything that we're tracking in the market impacts the commercial real estate finance space. So Stephen, why don't we start by breaking down how we've started the year.
2: Sure, thanks Haley. So after the Fed pivot in December, markets have really rallied here. And it seems like we are almost priced to perfection when it comes to the soft landing narrative, especially when you look at how markets were pricing rate cut expectations in late December and early January. But the Fed meeting yesterday, combined with the New York Community Bancorp, news that reignited regional banking concerns seemed to have thrown cold water on the resilience and soft landing optimists. So after we come out of dry January, Are investors sobering up to the reality that there are some fundamental issues that are yet to be addressed?
1: I'll do ladies first. Somebody interrupt me, cut me off. I'm not going to be like an air hog. I I think that the last uh, 24 hours have been been pivotal. When Jay Powell was at the podium in December, he said, and he was quoted as having said, that he'd be comfortable as long as he saw that we were getting close to the 2% target. He fully contradicted himself yesterday at the podium. He was beyond... Scripted. I've never seen him that scripted. And he's usually pretty scripted. The only time that he was off script was when he said no, no to March. And that's kind of what sent markets tumbling. And the other big takeaway was as a former Fed insider, he surely would have been on the horn yesterday with the FDIC and talking about New York Community Bank. It's not that it's such a large institution in and of itself. It's systemically important, but it had purchased signatures assets, and that definitely cast Quite a light on it yesterday and got market investors nervous. So there was a certain irony in the Fed removing from its statement that it was certain that the banking system was sound. It was a strange time to delete that on a day like that when you had the closest thing to a bank run that we've seen. Bigger picture in terms of TREP's audience is the sleeping giant of rotten commercial real estate loans on bank balance sheets has been reawoken. So people are now Focused once again on regional banks that have very high concentrations of commercial real estate loans and what those implications are after kind of 2023 ending with people hoping that that would just kind of go away.
3: Yeah, I think that's very interesting, too, because we've come into January and just being CMBS and CRE specific we've seen a a tremendous rally, the biggest rally we've seen in years in CMBS spreads. CMBS AAAs are in over 20 basis points, which is a very large move. Triple B minus at the bottom of the stack, they're in over 100 basis points in a month. And these are massive moves that we don't usually see in kind of a sleepy market. And all of a sudden, you know, I was down in Miami at a conference yesterday when two o'clock hit and well, it started with obviously in the morning with with the banking news, but obviously Jerome Powell threw some some more cold water on the markets with what he said. So it's going to be fascinating coming. Coming into February and, and and kind of we've had this tremendous rally in risk assets, which is which is great for this big wall of maturity we're trying to hit. We're we're hitting in in 2024. I feel like maybe we've gotten a little over our skis here because seven billion of new issuance and CMBS in January. That's a nice number but if we have you know the regional banks having major issues you know that's not going to do anything to knock down this wall of maturity so even the banking news overnight in japan you know with that the stock halted on that bank but due to us commercial real estate exposure you know i think you're just going to see more of these headlines right so for me, looking back, 2023 was much more from a banking perspective, at least about an interest rate issue that all these banks had due to the rate raise in 2022. But we forgot to talk about all the commercial real estate and what a vital cog the regional banks are in commercial real estate lending. The CMBS mortgage-backed market, we're only about 15, sometimes 20% of the lending market. It's the banks that are really driving the lending market. So we really got to keep an eye on what's going on there. And, and that's probably even more important than you know what's happening on just the CMBS side.
1: I think you need to look at it from a regulator's perspective and kind of what the major impediment was in 2023 in terms of brokering marriages. And, you know, after the financial crisis, the FDIC was able to have one bank marry another bank and and walk down the aisle. And they did that in a very deliberate manner, one bank at a time. And they resolved one bank at a time. The FDIC has their hands tied because banks don't want to acquire other banks' losses, In hold to maturity, the losses that they're sitting on in their treasury and mortgage-backed securities holdings that are not going down quickly enough, especially given Powell's resolute stance. And in addition to that, the FDIC will have, and the OCC, they'll have an even harder time trying to broker marriages between banks because there was so little price discovery in CRE in 2023 that it's difficult to value the loan books. So it, this is this is a big quandary, and you know if, if you dove deep down inside the entrails a lot of a lot of these bank earnings, the charge-offs that we're seeing in CRE are material.
4: Yes, we put out several research pieces over the last couple of weeks looking at the the charge-offs, looking at uh, loss provisions. You know, I think it's interesting. Both of you make really valid points in the sense that. Heading out of 2023 in December, like the banking crisis, whatever we call 2023, when we had the three banks fail, it kind of just gone away. Like nobody was talking about that. Powell's pivot in December, kind of taking a dovish tone. Everyone was thinking 24 was just going to hit the ground running and it was going to be like off to the races again. I think the somber reality though yesterday resonated with people and we're starting to see now, you know, you you couple that with some of these other data points that we brought out. So like my, my question for, for both of you is, there's been a tug of war between economists who think we're really primed for inflation to pick back up as the year progresses. We have stuff in the Red Sea, we have Middle Eastern concerns, we have other things that potentially disrupt supply chain and create additional inflationary pressure. You have others that dig through the job data and say, hey, there's way more weakness here than what the headline numbers suggest. And then there's, you know, people are kind of in the middle that say, listen, we we're expecting strength in 24, resilience in the first half of the year, maybe some weakness in the second half. You know, Danielle. I know you track this granularly daily. Mm-hmm. What is what is your sentiment around those those narratives?
1: So it's interesting. There, there were two things that put me on a path to looking into the lodging sector specifically. In the last week, I just published on that today, and one of them was a Wall Street Journal article about you know people taking ten million dollar vacations. And there has been a lot of money thrown at leisure travel, and it kind of culminated and peaked out and flamed out in uh, basically at Christmas. So I, I was noticing in an inflation metric that follows 13 million real-time prices called Trueflation T-R-U. Several months ago, they added Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott, really huge chains. They added millions of price points from those vendors, if you will. And we saw a big pop in the headline Truflation metric. And I said, what, what happened? It popped over... You know, it popped well over two plus percent. And the answer was, we added all these hotels and hotel rates are so strong that it actually moved the needle on the entire trueflation headline statistic, which by the way, they gave us the raw data. It has a correlation with headline CPI of 0.97. That is just about perfect. So this morning I woke up to 1.44. Overnight, the thing gapped down by the largest it ever has. So I reached out to the founders this morning and I said, what's the aberration today, guys? And their response was 10 out of 12 categories. Broad-based weakness in inflation. Again, a 0.97 correlation with the headline CPI and a print today of 1.44. The message is coming home. Everybody yesterday thinks it was New York City Bank Corp and it was the Powell Press Conference and there were the most important moments. For me, it was... A layoff tracker that came in with a total for the month of January of 103,000 announced layoffs in January, which just about negated the 107,000 jobs created in January, according to yesterday's ADP report. And it is the magnitude and the ubiquity of layoff announcements in the current earnings season because CEOs are completely under the gun. Challenger Grain Christmas does a very good job of tracking CEO turnover. 2023 CEO turnover wiped 2008 off the map. The average age of an incoming new CEO to replace whoever you've just henched has declined from 63 to 56 years old last year. They want dispassionate, disconnected, young gun CEOs to come in and make their shareholders and boards of directors happy by cutting headcount. And we have seen it across the board in January. And you know the the people who are still saying soft landing are starting, you know, to kind of whisper it. Yeah, they're, 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 the, the soft landing camp is becoming a murmur simply because the, the flood of headlines is too great to ignore. When you have twenty more than twenty thousand layoffs in one day a few days ago between PayPal and UPS and big names, so I, I think that the reality of recession is setting in. It's, it's being reflected as it should in inflation metrics. And what I was speaking about earlier is, and I'd love Dan's thoughts on this, is we've seen office impairment 1.0. We saw that with work from home, which became work from anywhere, which became outsourcing of, of, of white-collar workers, 1,000 to Mumbai in finance at a time, big companies last year. Now we have the actual recession coming in. So you have an impaired sector that's now going to meet office impairment 2.0, which is the old plain vanilla recession that would have hurt the office sector in a regular non-pandemic cycle.
3: Yeah. I mean, you nailed it on the head there. And I've been a big believer that, you know, work from home is here to stay. And, you know, I think 2023 was the year that uh, I would say the kind of return to office probably died. Um, Even though, you know, Danielle, you talk about UPS and, and they were talking about the bringing back their white collar workers five days a week. I think you're gonna see more headlines like that. I mean, whether you can accomplish that, that that's fine. But but overall, I think what you're getting at is, and I've always said this, and, 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 and sometimes people in the last year or two have disagreed with me, is that a recession is never good for commercial real estate or office space specifically. And, you know, we're looking for, or, or, or CEOs are looking for any ways to to cut costs. And, you know, after their employees, the number the number two cost is is their office space so from that perspective you're going to see more and more of that yes they're going to try to force you to come back to the office and maybe they'll be successful and certain companies will and you know, some companies won't with some of the younger workers, but but overall, you know, the square footage usage is, or, or needs is just going to be lower. Recessions are bad for commercial real estate and recessions are bad for office. And it's this double whammy we've never seen, obviously, because we've never had this dynamic of this massive secular shift in the way we'd work. And then boom, the next year or the next two years, you know, we are in this this recession, it's going to be interesting you're basically putting pressure on a sector that's that's down for the count and you're starting to see these even just away from office. A lot of the things that Danielle are talking about filtering into the retail sector, you're seeing stores close, headcount get cut, H&M just came out, which globally is one of the biggest retailers. They're cutting headcount and and stores shutting stores across globally. So I just think this is kind of a vicious cycle here. And it's not just office. It's 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 all sorts of, of different sectors of CRE that are going to have unique pressure points.
1: Well, and and we have to remember that you know it, it's it's nice to talk about office conversions to multifamily, but first you need to talk about the white collar workers who are required to fill the multifamily because ninety percent or whatever were luxury built, and you're and, and we're we're having a parallel conversation about a white collar recession. I mean that's their tenant, that is their their target tenant, and. Speaking to the biggest public pension funds in the country a few days ago in Carlsbad, California, th- there is a definite freakout factor right now going on in multifamily because the distress is piling up so fast, and they look like a bunch of deer in the headlights, a- a- as well they should. And I mean, you know, some of them are just saying to themselves, you know, thank God about industrial, and I just kind of walked the other direction.
4: It's funny you mentioned that, Daniel. I was at the NMHC conference out in San Diego earlier this week, and your comments from, from that previous conference you just mentioned resonated. I had a, several people come up to me and say, did you see what Danielle said at this? Did you see what she thinks about multifamily distress or whatever? I was like, hey, you should listen on Thursday. She's coming on our podcast, and we're going to do some deep dive on that stuff. So it was amazing seeing some folks that maybe weren't as familiar with your work, having you kind of rattle some cages there with like, hey, look, it's not all roses. It's not all peachy. So I wanted to give you guys... Some, some numbers in perspective here, and you can comment because you've, you've hit the nail on the head with the layoffs. And I think it's interesting, like there was this misnomer, like we will go into a recession that's going to force people back in the office. But when we go into a recession, they just let people go and there's a lot less people coming back to the office, right? Like, that part of the equation wasn't factored in. So Hasbro, 20% of their workforce, Spotify, 17%, Levi's, 15%, Xerox, 15%, Duolingo, 10%, uh, Charles Schwab, 6%. Uh, Citigroup, 20,000 employees, UPS, 12,000, American Airlines, 650. I mean, that's just in the last 90 days. And that's on top of the tech stuff that we saw in 2023. Like in 23, it was isolated to just the tech sector. But now you're starting to see it much more broadly. So just with those numbers, like just add some perspective. Like is this, Daniel, is this like the beginning of something much bigger?
1: It's interesting that Dan brought up the fact that after labor being your biggest cost, it's it's real estate. I, th- I think what people need to realize is, is that white-collar layoffs are expensive. So for the 12000 that Google laid off in in 2023, they announced they had a $2.1 billion severance charge. And then they said, oh, by the way, we fired another 1,000 people. You know, we, we don't want to make big waves and headlines about these things. Um, but we think that our severance charges for the first quarter, end at May 30, 2024, are going to be $700 million. Well, that tells me that they have an accelerating level of severance expense charge-offs, meaning they're not finished firing people. It was a Wall Street phenomenon, and that that was chapter two. Chapter one was a Silicon Valley phenomenon. The problem is, you just mentioned Citigroup, the problem is these things keep coming in one wave after another. Media companies are letting people go like crazy. And that's when you get to the Google actual earnings and they're like, oh yeah, ad revenues are suffering. And But but people put these ma- magnificent seven in this magnificent silo. And I'm like, if, if media is being hurt by ad revenues declining, then a monster like Google's also gonna have, to, I mean, it's a discretionary expense for a company, no matter who they're paying to place ads, the waves are gonna keep coming back and visiting these sectors that I think all they've done is get rid of excess fat. They haven't really start to cut yet. And that's probably not what anybody wants to hear, but all of these massive companies have huge corporate footprints in the world of CRE. Dan mentioned retail. I can't tell you how prevalent it's becoming to see chapter 11s turn into chapter sevens. Rite Aid announced a few days ago, we don't think we're gonna be able to get a buyer. It's not gonna be only a certain number of locations that are gonna close. It's looking like we're going full on liquidation, closing all of our locations. I'm like, that's gonna hurt. Retail, it's gonna hurt hard. And I I think that that's why you're seeing the the presentation that you're talking about. it, It was in the morning. I think they needed like vodka in their orange juice. But there were people like taking pictures of a slide that I put up that showed multifamily appraisal reductions in 2023, full year were worse than they were for office. And they're like, that has got to be a typo. And I'm like, they're unrealized, I get it. But But the distress is there and there's a greater degree of distress in multifamily than there is for office because so much has already been realized in office. But we haven't started really the realization process in other sectors of CRE,
4: that's pretty compelling stuff. And listen, like we've been saying for a while, the distress is there; it just hasn't reared its head yet. And the headlines move faster than the distress. That's something we know. But it seems like the distress is potentially, you know, coming to the surface. So Dan, you mentioned earlier, CNBS has been rallying. Obviously, first of the year, everyone's hungry for new issuance. But if you look at it, cap rates are still adjusting. How bearish or bullish are you on the CRE capital stack? And then after you finish, Danielle, you mentioned hotels earlier. So we want to do some deep dive into occupancy, RevPAR, some of the fundamentals
3: that you wrote about uh, today. Coming into to the year traditionally cmbs does have a january effect where you know you have a lot of real money investors who have money to put to work and nine times out of ten our market rallies regardless of what's going on in a macroeconomic world january has been a much stronger rally than anyone i think anticipated before the the headlines yesterday but it makes me cautious it definitely does i mean i still think at the top of the capital stack bonds that are very isolated from losses you know that there's a big desire for those assets we're still relatively cheap to corporates we'll, we'll see saw back and forth you know because we're a little less liquid market but but down the capital stack is what really worries me really because i do think that you know there will be significant losses down the capital stack and historically if you look back 2006 2007 2008 vintages that were done before the GFC, you know you were looking at average losses between 10 and 15 percent on these cmbs securitizations and clearly we've changed the underwriting a little bit and, and and kind of you know risk retention but you know my expectations because of some of these secular changes while going into a recession Um, I still think we're going to see in in some securitizations, you know, high single digit or low double digit losses, which would affect kind of the lowest investment grade bonds of some securitization. So I'm very cautious down the stack. I think there's a lot of opportunity in CMBS. um, But, you know, I think it's turned it's not it's not a beta trade for sure. Um, In fact, I think it's become a credit picker's market where you actually really have to understand the assets that are in these securitizations to be able to invest in them from the long side or the short side. The market hasn't been like that in a very long time. It's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to 2024. I think there's going to be lots of opportunity, but we got to be very careful.
2: On the SASB side, I, I was thinking at least at the end of last year that maybe with the, the rally we'd gotten in spreads, the long end of the curve really selling off. That maybe there was a sweet spot, a small window where it makes sense for some of the the better performing SasB deals that had experienced so much pain with the floating rate increases that they had incurred over the last you know eighteen months to maybe go ahead and say, "You know what, Enough is enough. Let's refi out of this. Five-year money has, has gotten cheap enough. Has that window closed? Do you think?
3: Um, no, it hasn't closed yet. I mean, I still think that, you know, we're looking at a, a 10-year note that's, you know, 385. And I think one of the interesting dynamics, you kind of said the five-year debt and in, in, in switching it over to fixed rate, you're seeing a lot of that on the conduit side where, where you're actually having these five-year, traditionally, the CMBS conduit deals are 10-year deals. And you're seeing a lot of five-year deals. And this is a new phenomenon that started last year. And we've already had a couple of five-year deals this year. We've done about $7 billion of non-agency CMBS uh, in January. And I think that that's, it's an interesting dynamic that you have these borrowers who are coming out and saying, you know, I don't really want to borrow for 10 years, but I need to do something, whether they're taking floating rate debt and putting in the fixed, or they just don't want to lock in the rate for 10 years and they're moving it to five years. For me, I think it's kind of comical because- It's actually a little bit more expensive, I think, to get the five-year debt um, in general, if you're just looking at the conduit market slightly. But again, a 385 10-year note or a 4% five-year note, that's not that high historically, you know, I know it feels high when you were getting 3% or 4% mortgages a few years ago, but in reality, like, I mean, I don't know where rates are going to be in five years, but I think the odds are there's a chance they could be here or higher. So we'll have to see. They're lower. It's because we've probably had a pretty rough five years in the economy. Who knows? It's predicting five, 10 years forward rates is a, it's, it's nothing I want to do for a living.
1: Yeah. I think that that was one of the most telling things was that the average maturity in multifamily has been cut in half from 10 to five. And that was one of the biggest movers within you know the subsectors that i was like wow okay and and hotels by the way they've got the highest (laughs) i mean those are some high high numbers sevens and what have you but before we jump into hotels which i want to do i I did want to bring up just really quickly this work that i published about the year of refinancing for high yield corporate bonds there there there's a different dynamic for corporations if you're joe q Jan q cfo and your bond is maturing in March of 2025, you need to refinance that before March of 2024, because they're, they're, it's just a quirk of accounting. Once you pass 12 months of maturity, once you're inside that 12 month maturity window, that bond is recast as a current liability, which can quickly trash your financials. So as a corporate borrower, you want to get into the bond market and preemptively get out of the paper. Your CEO is telling you, CFO, to do it. And and if your balance sheet constrained, and we have to bring New York City Bank Corp back in, not that it's that bank, but just to say that banks in general are tightening standards still and their balance sheet constrained. So if they're forced to choose between a corporate borrower, let's let's just take a very best case scenario, Jamie Dimon, Fortune 400 company, all the executives have their accounts with the private bank at J.P. Morgan. They've got their line of credit with the bank. They, they do investment banking business with them, mergers, acquisitions, divestitures, secondary uh, equity offerings. Or, so if Jamie Dimon's considering... Do I need to be the lead underwriter on on refinancing this corporate bond or take my constrained balance sheet and apply it to a building? And it's just a different decision framework that in theory, and especially in a recession, will cause cap rates to be higher than they otherwise would be ceteris paribus. And so I think that that dynamic is really important because we have never hit a maturity wall in 40 years. Corporate America, corporate bonds have never, ever, 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 ever hit a maturity wall. Nobody on Wall Street can tell you what's to come because you always had Greenspan or Bernanke or Yellen ride to the rescue and and just take interest rates down in a violent fashion such that you were able to not collide into that wall, but it is a March 2024 event. It is upon us. So I think we. I think even though you're in the CRE world, this is my greatest feedback from speaking to a CRE audience in in California. Even if you're in a CRE world, you have to pay attention to what's going on on the corporate side this year.
3: That's a scary thought. Just thinking of using the Trump data and the 2.8 trillion of uh, CRE debt that's coming due between now and the end of 28. It's. To think that that's kind of kind of take a back seat, which I agree with Danielle's point, you know, we ju- there's a lot of debt coming due and spreads will probably have to go wider and spreads are, at least in the corporate side of the world, price for perfection. You know, that could put pressure on other structured products and CMBS specifically.
1: Well, and that's why when I depict the maturity wall, I don't actually properly scale CRE. I purposely leave the scales identical so that you can see how much higher the refinancing wall of maturity is on the corporate side. Because I put the two graphs up on one and scare people. Anyways, one of those areas of refinancing that's about on par with retail starting in Q2 and CRE and just under what offices in terms of refinancing needs is lodging. It's going to happen. And lodging delinquencies have come down so much. They spiked and then they completely round tripped and, and came down, but by way of backdrop, right now you've got a record amount of supply in the construction pipeline. Again, the theme is the same as multifamily; the majority of it is is, is high end luxury. You have, to the extent that Airbnb markets have not are, have not been shut down by regulators, that is a separate source of competition, and they're taking their prices down and they're taking their prices down quickly because these Airbnb jocks they don't have they don't have the ability to refinance. They're running out of runway. They're going to have to sell these properties. They're trying to convert them to long term leases. So Airbnb rates are coming down fast. So there's a flip of American families moved back into hotels because Airbnb got so expensive. Now they're going to go back to Airbnb because they're going to be relatively cheaper. And having dinner last night with a hotel executive, listening to what she is, how she's advising her clients, which are the biggest hotel chains in the country, is you're in a bad way if you're in a unionized city. You've already got the issue of interest rates, and that's that's hard enough. But a room service delivery person making $100,000 a year, that's hard. And there's not much you can do about that. So because the employee retention credit, which I've done a lot of work on, which we don't have to get into, let's just say because in July and August, that money was exhausted It was used then to plan holidays in the past holiday season. And what we're looking at with revenue, RevPAR, what we're looking at with occupancy is that literally in January, it hit a wall and it hit a wall hard. So your RevPAR growth is 0.4% up Q1 to date year over year. That compares to 1.3% Q4 of 2023 and 17% in q One of 2023. Rev Par growth is collapsing and occupancy weekend leisure traveler. And that is where the $1.3 trillion of paycheck protection program and employee retention credit money that was handed out, like any other stimulus check, it powered leisure luxury lodging. So when I hear SASB, I get a nervous twitch now because there's so much lodging in that particular corner of of CMBS. But this is a sector that is not being paid attention to, that does have a material amount of refinancing coming due in 2024. And you can apply everything that Dan explains happens to office in real recessions. You can apply all of that to lodging as well.
2: Layer on top of that, just how far we've come with technology making it Costless to do virtual meetings, so that the in-person, you know, business nights really are are discretionary. So on on top of that, as you mentioned earlier, with the corporate cost control, once that keeps once that ball keeps rolling, it's there's a lot more pain in store. Uh, it feels like because business travel was one of the early things to support some of these hotels, and then the revenge travel was a fantastic sweetener. But you know, right now, as you said, we're we're looking at both of those sources drying up and RevPar collapsing.
1: But I mean, on a happy note, I really want to state the Fountain Blue in Las Vegas. It's a massive property, so we should I should be able to get some sweet rates there. I've got some speeches coming up in Vegas, so I'm pretty excited about this new property.
4: So just to give some data, Daniel, know. like I, I don't do a podcast or a, a panel or a webinar without some data. Uh, just to, to help back <laughs> That's up what up I like what doing said. with you. <laughs> <laughs> so Daniel said a material amount of maturities. If you look at hotel, the lodging sector over the next 24 months, there's almost sixty-one billion worth of upcoming maturities in the CMBS universe. So that's not inconsequential. And of that 61 billion, plus or minus 20 billion of that has current debt service coverage at the NOI at less than 125X. So even in the current conditions where RevPar ADRs are are at stable, high numbers. They're not making debt service uh, through operations. And as Danielle mentioned, you start seeing a pullback in some of that leisure travel, and it gets really scary really quickly for some of these folks. So 60 plus billion, next 24 months, fundamentals that are faltering. It'll be interesting to keep an eye on. And I agree with you, Danielle, this has not been something that's been discussed widely, obviously, kind of underneath the office sector, but uh, we're starting to see some erosion in, in the lodging sector for sure
3: we haven't touched on the expense side for the hotels. I mean, those have exploded and that's why you're seeing the low debt service coverage ratios and the smaller operators are getting hit harder, whether it's staffing or insurance, all, all sorts of different expenses, kind of expense inflation. So I, I think that that's really been stressing people and going to continue for a while.
1: Yeah, you know, it was just after the pandemic that when you would check into hotel, if you were this rare person, you know, you could hear your echo in the hotel lobby and you know they would explain to you everything that you were gonna do for your room all the way to cleaning your own toilet and making your own bed. And that went away, largely. In my, I, I've done nine cities in 29 days, and I have been asked for the first time in a long time if I want housekeeping.
4: Yeah, I think the expense stuff is it's undeniable. We put out a bunch of research over the last six months, first with multifamily. We just released our first report on the office sector. We'll be following that up with lodging. But that inflationary pressure across the expense line item stack is real. I mean, insurance is one that we don't think is being talked about enough. But if you look at multifamily office, they're actually making deals, not pencil, because you're seeing triple digit increases in the line item expense for insurance. There's no real alternative. You know, you have a very limited number of people providing insurance. And when they decide to pull out of a market or not write policies, that supply and demand curve doesn't benefit the borrower. Effectively, the price just goes up. Uh, personnel costs significantly higher. You mentioned that, Danielle, on the union side, just nothing you can do about that as an operator. doesn't matter how great you operate your property, you can't reduce that expense or exposure. And then supply chain disruptions with building costs and just repairs and maintenance are significant. So we're seeing expense creep across the sectors. And to your point, any type of erosion on top-line revenue, and we're seeing that with multifamily. I think the combination on, on multi is you're seeing a pullback in rent growth. You're seeing this ex- increase in um, expenses and the cost of capital is significantly higher than their previous financing. It's a recipe for some some real distress. So I know Stephen, you had a couple of questions. We'll we'll transition to that. Uh, but this has been an amazing podcast
2: so far. I appreciate both of you guys being here. Just one more, uh, just to pour, pour some more salt in the wound before I move on to this next question. You know, let's not forget a lot of those hotels are also floating rate, and so they do have extension options. You still have rate caps that you have to buy, and with so far still being. You know, relatively high and the rate cut path uncertain, that, uh, that volatility parameter that goes into pricing these options is still going to be painful. So it's triple whammy here uh, between RevPAR collapsing, expenses, suffering inflation, and then the rate caps. It's uh, it's not a good landscape. So speaking of all of this distress, if if this is more or less known by the Fed, even if they're signaling something different with their very scripted narrative yesterday, the, the quantitative tightening I feel like is, is something that you know, keeps bubbling up and has a good bit. So is there some potential risks for how low liquidity really is in the overnight funding market, especially given the the spikes that we saw in November and December that may or may not have led to the Fed decision to make that dovish pivot. So how concerned are we about liquidity right now?
1: We, we can fall down an ugly rabbit hole, but let's just say that there's there has been a shock absorber for the financial system in terms of its liquidity called a reverse repo facility. And I, I I liken it to a shock absorber. It was two and a half trillion. It's now south of 600 billion. They believe that this shock absorber is going to be depleted or at least get down to a minimum balance probably here uh, in, in April or May, depending on who you ask. And uh, the reason it's been emptying out is because Janet Ellen's been selling treasury bills, money market funds, just flip out of this Fed facility into the uh, into the treasury bills because the Fed has finished raising interest rates. But what it means and the reason I'm using the analogy of a shock absorber is that if you have a huge two and a half trillion dollar shock absorber, you can hit a pretty big pothole and, you know, you're not going to do any damage to the car. Once that shock absorber is is absorbed, you, you might be breaking the axle. And the reason this plays into quantitative tightening is because we haven't felt it. You know, um, other deposits, liabilities is something I follow weekly in, in, in the Fed's uh, H8 report. They're down by $2 trillion. And you're like, well, you could have fooled me. But that's a big, big amount. It's about a 1.5 multiplier effect for every billion dollars of quantitative tightening. But we haven't felt it because this shock absorber has absorbed the shock of all of this liquidity coming out of the system. When I say a bank is balance sheet constrained, I mean, if, if they're bleeding deposits, if commercial and industrial lending is turned negative, crazy things are occurring that you only see in recession, by the way, in the banking system. But when you have this huge shock absorber and a very politicized Janet Yellen trying to sell as many bills as she possibly can to keep the reality of how bad the government's finances are, you don't see how bad the liquidity is in the financial system until it slaps you in the face, until you break the axle. And so that is its own separate dynamic. Forget about what we were talking about with losses that banks are sitting on, with unknown losses that they're sitting on in their commercial real estate portfolios. Forget about those two. There's a third aspect called liquidity. And it is critical in the coming years because the the more balance sheet constrained banks are, the the more deliberate and choosy they're going to be in what kind of lending
2: that they're willing to make. So I feel like almost ostrich-like and i i want to think where do i put capital to work do i go play some defense for a few months how do i get wrap my mind around when to start playing offense and what type to play i mean there's
3: definitely places to play offense but i think overall you know in fixed income and, and the cnbs specifically like it's higher quality um assets i mean there's still there's still plenty of higher quality you know things in the cnbs market you can buy that you can kind of get made High single single digit, depending on your return profile and your risk profile. Um, but you got to be very careful. Like I was saying earlier, that you know there are plenty of bonds out there that are going to zero. So it's it, you got to be very thoughtful about risk. And and this right now, I mean, post this rally too. I mean, we've had a three January has been a, a great rally, but we also rallied in, in November and December. And you know, yields and spreads on bonds are much tighter than they were just three months ago. Um, So you you just got to be careful. And I think you're supposed to probably be a little patient here. You know, I don't think that this Goldilocks environment or this soft landing that kind of makes me laugh a little bit because I don't think it's a reality is here. But that doesn't mean there's not opportunity on the long side. And, you know, I think today there's probably more opportunity on the short side.
1: If I can interrupt, I have a question. I have a burning question for Lonnie and and all of his data. Uh, You're in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I'll eventually get back to Dallas, Texas. I've been gone since January the 4th, but I'll eventually get home and get back to Dallas. Why doesn't anybody talk about, I hear about vacancy rates in San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York in office. If I want it for QI research to to get office space, all I have to do is change my my business bank account from Chase to Comerica and they'll give me office space for free in their tower in downtown Dallas. Why doesn't anybody ever talk about these insane vacancy rates and how much construction has gone on in these major Texas markets in office?
4: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, it, and what's really interesting is if you look back 10, 15 years for stabilized occupancy across the major markets in Texas in the office sector, stabilized occupancy is about 80%. So there's a, a normal vacancy factor of 20%, which is just mind-boggling. If you look at multifamily, it's you know stabilized occupancy and good markets should be somewhere between 90, 95%. Hotels even sometimes have higher occupancy than some of these office markets. And it's it's really interesting. I saw some stuff maybe four months ago that looked at the large downtown Dallas office towers and what their cost of construction was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and then every subsequent trade since then there's really no material value appreciation on those buildings because the stabilized vacancy rate is too high and now you double that up to where some of these markets have 40% vacancy. And it's really hard to even quantify like what the sublease availability does and what the shadow vacancy is in these markets. I mean, I think that's the part that, you know, I don't have the statistics in front of me for Dallas. We look at like Minneapolis as an example, three and a half four million square feet of sublease availability on top of their true vacancy. I'm not good at math, but if you just take the typical lease size of maybe you know forty thousand, fifty thousand square feet, and you divide that into the four million square foot of sublease space, this just by just mathematical terms, this isn't a four or five year turnaround. You're talking like a ten plus year turnaround. Then that's assuming some sort of natural absorption that's that's above historical norm. So people don't want to talk about that because every time you drive through a city, you see downtown office buildings, and if people actually allowed themselves to to feel the impact of what that means. Like if the office sector truly does get depleted from a value perspective, 40, 50, 60% at scale, I mean, that has significant economic impact much more broadly than just that local um, CBD or whatever. And so it's it's really interesting. Stephen put out some research a few months ago for the first time in history that we've tracked the data. Urban office had higher delinquency than suburban office. And so we've seen this paradigm shift, not only in um in just worker preference but now it's starting to show up in the data in terms of delinquency that urban high-end class a offices actually had a higher percentage of delinquency than suburban and we ran a simple analysis that said if you look at in-place debt yield um on current maturing debt for third uh, fourth quarter of 23 through end of 24 plus or minus about 30 billion dollars worth of maturing loans in place debt yield on those loans were 8.8 percent all 2023 issuance in office underwritten debt yield is 15. So if you assume you maybe have a strong sponsor, you have some of those relationships you were talking about Danielle at a bank, you could get a 12 debt yield on underwriting on a refi. There's a deficit of about 9 billion dollars in total. You're getting about 73% of uh proceed payoffs. You're going to have to cash in about 9 billion. So the narrative like the headlines are pervasive. But I don't know that people are digging a little bit deeper because when you start looking at that broadly, it could be very systemic, very quickly. And even in markets like Texas, where we're having net in migration and the underlying underlying fundamentals support growth, there's there's a scary story to tell there if you dig a few layers below the headlines.
1: I have a solution for Dallas, though. Let's do hear you, it. Do you want to know what my my solution is? I'm I'm ready. Okay, so I think um, I think Clyde Warren Park is beautiful. So what I think we should do is we should extend it. On the side of the opposite of a victory, we should just take that whole side of downtown Dallas and just make it green and plant some trees. we can we can expand the Nasher Sculpture Museum. There'll be a lot of room for that. And that way, everybody who wants to office in victory can office in victory and and you'll get rid of your occupancy uh, headache overnight, and it'll be beautiful. Yeah.
4: Yeah, isn't that like you know just change the denominator and you get a little bit different outcome? I mean, I think that's... us uh, I mean, don't tell that part...
1: It wasn't that long ago that he built the building on the wrong side of whoops, wrong side of victory, but um, wrong side of the highway. But uh, but that's my solution: is we just go green.
4: Yeah, I'll Austin let you pitch would that. be so envious. Oh, Austin! Yeah, yeah. Um, I was I spent six years in Austin, so I understand what uh, the challenges are there. They would be envious for sure. They have a green building code in Austin, uh, first of its kind in Texas. Listen, like Dallas is is a weird conundrum in the sense that like Goldman Sachs is opening up another huge office tower. They have construction right now, supposed to be bringing thousands of employees here. But you look at State Farm; they just sold their corporate headquarters out in Richardson. I think it was like 285 million, maybe 385 million. That was a billion dollar type of facility just five or six years ago. So it's just weird how the market plays itself out, right? I think it kind of goes to Steven's question of if you have capital, where are you investing? For some people, maybe they see opportunity that I just don't see. And for others, if you just look at the data, like I don't know why you would be putting capital to play here when historical stabilized occupancy in the office space is 20, uh, vacancy is 20%, stabilized occupancy is 80. like just not a good track record in terms of that scenario.
1: So the 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 managers in the audience did not like me in California at all. Yeah, they they did not like me at all. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story real quick. I was in the bar watching the New Hampshire primaries um on the big t- TV and and writing my daily and this guy walks up to this younger guy I'd been talking to about, you know, your presentation and blah 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 and he uh he said, "Oh, there comes my boss." And and I again, I'm like casually dressed like I am right now, black top, blue jeans, not my bright red dress that I was wearing on stage, you know? you know, looking like the devil apparently to him. But he walks up and he's like, yeah, I just got off a conference call with my board of directors. And I was telling him about this crazy woman in the morning, this Dr. Doom and Gloom and everything. She was, did you happen to see her? And I went, it's just data. And he turned white and he was very embarrassed. And his young lackey didn't quite know how to react to the boss, but um, maybe he had to be there, but um, Dr. Doom and Gloom, I was like, man, that's just awful.
0: Before we close, I think Dan and Danielle, this has been an awesome episode, but why don't you leave our audience with one final thought and maybe we'll make it a silver lining for 2024. So Dan, why don't you kick us off?
3: <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll try to make it a silver lining. It's not as easy with uh, Danielle and myself sometimes, but <laughs> um, when we go down these rabbit holes, but no, I, I do think that, you know, there, there's a significant amount of opportunity on the debt side of the CRE market. You know, all the things we're talking about, whether it be impairments on certain sides, but, or, or just in reality, we're going to need new new capital and new structures. And, and, and that will provide, you know, lots of opportunities for people with fresh capital. There's not a lot of solutions for people that are, you know, in impaired in assets today. We're going to need new m- money and we're going to need new structures to kind of help us out of this mess. We'll get through it. I mean, this is, I don't believe this is s- systemic. I, you know, I think there'll be pockets of severe pain and I think there'll be pockets, a large pockets of opportunity. So, you know, I'm optimistic that, you know, the CMBS market will rebound. Uh, we rebounded from 2008. We'll get through this um, overall, you know, it may take a lot of modifications and extensions and some short-term pain. But I mean, overall, I think that, um, you know, the CMBS as a whole, the pie will probably grow bigger um, as regional banks will pull back. I mean, that's just something that's just a fact. I think that's a kind of a green shoot is that the CMBS market, you know, on the other side of this could get larger and bigger and more influential.
1: You know, I, I did hear this might not be a silver lining, but it was certainly a mature way of looking at what's to come. I made this comment in California because on that day, a billion dollars had been raised to buy distressed office properties. And you know, I made the comment, being the happy person that I am, that I'd rather, I'd rather wait for the next distressed fund that was set up to buy the properties from them. So I'm like, wait, wait <laughs> for 2.0. And this person was a Californian and telling me that the 15-year-old mall on Union Square that had Nordstrom's flagship store. That's no longer there. Uh, they were going to raise a 15-year-old property off the ground because they recognized how severe and how long the impairment might last, but that there was really good quality land sitting underneath it. And you know, in in Dallas, we've got North Park Mall, we've got Valley View Mall. Somebody finally said, "There's only so many Halloween shops you can you can you know set up in these." A data centers need space and AI is big and there's something to be said for that. But B, I think, I think office developers should appreciate the, the the lessons that have been learned in retail. And that's that sometimes you should cut to the chase. If there's no economics in trying to restore a building or get it up to snuff or, or get the financing or pour more equity into it. I think that everybody should be looking at CRE in terms of the land underneath it. And how valuable that property is in in terms of its location because that's still something that is of inherent value is where something is
3: that's a that's a great point and and also to your other point i mean rxr who six months ago was you know kind of started the ball rolling or at least said something that a lot of people probably didn't want to hear from from commercial real estate office owners is that they may give the keys back on on us you know I think at the time he said 10 or 15 percent of their portfolio and this is the same company that's partnering with Aries and raising a billion dollar office fund the other the side of it is David Rubinstein at Carlisle he, they raised a multi billion dollar fund to invest in multi fam and industrial properties two years ago because it was an amazing opportunity. Well, it turned out that was probably the top of the market. They're out now with a, they just raised a, or are raising a $400 million fund. And, and now they're saying that, you know, this is the most amazing time to invest in multi fam and industrial. So uh, you could be right, Danielle. Maybe, may, maybe it's better to wait for the second fund. Who knows? Uh, timing this stuff is very difficult, but. But I think you nailed it on the head with, you know, you start with what is the actual ground underneath the building and, and we'll go from there.
0: Yep. Well, thank you, Dan and Danielle for joining us today. We're so glad to have you back on the Trepwire podcast as repeat guests. And we'll definitely be in touch and talk to you more in the future. But listeners, make sure you look up Danielle and Dan both on the Twitter space or we'll call it X, but it's really Twitter. And if you want to learn more about them, just give them a Google You'll see them cited all throughout the news and what they're looking at, what they're researching, and where they're at. Thanks very much. Thank Take you. care. And with that, we'll close. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send an email to podcast at trep.com. For more info, visit trep.com and subscribe to the Trepwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well.
4: All
2: right. All right. All right. Welcome.
1: <laughs> okay.